All right. Today is our 11th and final message from 1 Peter. Um, it's a pretty short epistle, but there sure is a lot packed in there. And that really um, speaks to the divine inspiration of Scripture, right? That there is so much can be said in such a short um, amount of time, and that there is so much there. Um, even after we read it again and again and again, we can always find something new because it is living and active. It speaks to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to dive in today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 in First Peter chapter 5. It says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock that of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." So Peter opens now and he's, it, it, this chapter, this section. Um, he shifts uh, to address specifically the elders in the various churches that he is writing to. And the question that we might have is, what benefit is there to everyone in the church hearing about uh, instructions for the elders? Well, first off, it's to hold the elders accountable, right? There's a reason that Peter didn't send this as a separate letter to the elders only, right? He could have done that. He could have written a separate letter, sent it with them, said, hey, give this only to the elders. But he didn't. He included it in the letter that's for everybody. And this was intended to be read in uh, with, all, with everybody present. And so they would hear what elders should be doing, and they'd be able to hold them accountable. There shouldn't be any secrecy, any clandestine uh, meeting. Any, the, the authority should be practiced in a servant-like manner anyway, and so it's okay for everyone to hear the instructions to the elders uh, so they can hold the elders accountable. It also helps us to lead well in all areas, right? If these instructions are about how elders are to lead those who are in their charge, then it applies in all other situations in which we might have leadership. At least there might be some application that we can have when we consider how do we lead in the workplace? How do we lead in our families? How do we lead when we teach Sunday school, when we uh, are an older sibling to somebody, right? Whatever situations we have where we hold positions of leadership, we can find application in these instructions. It also lets us know what it takes to be an elder, right? Desiring to be an elder is something that um, is, is an aspiration that we're told is good, specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. They're saying something that's good for people to desire to be. And and now they could know what does it look like? What should it look like if you want to be an elder? And I do want to pause here briefly and just talk about leadership roles in the church. Because there are really, when, when, we, when you look at churches in general, right, there's all kinds of different 
uh, positions that you might find in, in ministry, whether it's in paid ministry or even volunteers, right? When you look at some of the, the old school denominations, there's like bishops and they're over all these churches. And then maybe you'll have a, a reverend or a minister or a pastor. And, uh, and then there's elder boards and there's uh, church governing boards. And we have a church chairman and there's deacons and deaconesses. And, and there's all these different, there's ministry directors, right? There's all these different titles that we might use. And a lot of those can be useful. Sometimes that structure can be useful in terms of organization and that kind of thing. But when we look at Scripture's instruction to the church um, and, and qualifications for these different levels of ministry and all those kind of things, there's really only two in Scripture. Even though there might be different words to talk about each of these things, there's really only two, elder and deacon. Elder and deacon. There's really just these two levels that Scripture addresses at all. So that when we see these other words being used to refer to these things, um, that it, it's simply a matter of, of how individual churches are organizing themselves. Bishop, presbyter, pastor, minister, reverend, shepherd, overseer. These are all words that you might find in, in your Bibles, depending on your translations, that refer to the office of elder. Now, pastor specifically is kind of an odd word because we've adopted it in, in our uh, church culture to refer to those who are in paid ministry. right? But we also use it for people who are at the elder level of authority and those who are at the deacon level of authority, right? So for a long time, I was youth pastor here, and then I was associate pastor. When I was youth pastor, I was at the deacon level. When I was associate pastor, most of the time I was at the deacon level, and then they moved me to the elder level. And then now I'm at the elder level as lead pastor. But I was still pa called pastor the whole time. So it's kind of this weird thing. So if you go to a church and you meet somebody who's a pastor there, you don't really know what kind of authority they have. Or you don't really know where, where, where are they at, where are they at in the, in the organization uh, level of this thing. So then we have deacons on the second level. They're called to provide leadership in various ministries. The very first ministry where they're created in the early church is uh, distributing bread to widows in Acts chapter 6. And both are called to be servant leaders. Both elders and deacons are called to be servant leaders, radically different than how the world practices leadership. Now notice um, in, in this first verse how Peter introduces himself, right? He says, that he, I exhort you as a fellow elder, right, as a fellow elder. Notice the humility that Peter demonstrates in this very introduction. I, I exhort you as a fellow elder, right? Think about the things that he could have said there, right? Listen, as an apostle, you heard of it? Capital A, apostle. As one of Jesus' original disciples, right, ODs. Right? I'm, I, that's who I am? I'm that guy. Listen to me. No, he says, as a fellow elder, as a guy who's just doing what you do, right? as somebody who's just like you, that's how he introduces himself. And then he says, or he could have even, could have even used his, you know, as Peter, you know, means Petra, rock, the rock on which the church will be built. I'm, the, I'm that guy. 
that you should be listening to. But no, he keeps it humble as a fellow elder. Then he says, and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Now, again, if he's going to bring up something that he's witnessed, he's got a lot of options. Because he was with Jesus through his whole ministry, right? As a witness to the beginnings of Jesus' ministry, as a witness to all of his miracles, as a witness to all of his teachings, as the guy who walked on water with Jesus. Ever heard of that story, huh? Right, that's who I am, the guy that walked on water with Jesus. As someone who witnessed the resurrection, ate with the resurrected Christ, walked with the resurrected Christ, touched the resurrected Christ. I'm that guy, witnessed that. No, what does he point to? There's a witness, the sufferings of Christ. Which is not only like a low moment for Jesus, I mean, Jesus' sufferings, like of all the things you could bring up, that's the, the pain is what you bring up. But not only that, consider what do the sufferings of Christ mean for Peter? His absolute worst moment. Right, the moment when he failed. Because when he was witnessing the sufferings of Christ, when he was sitting outside the gates looking in as the Sanhedrin beat him and spit on him, he did nothing. And then when someone said, hey, weren't you with Jesus? He denied him. After promising Jesus that he would never deny him, he did it three times. He denied Jesus as he was suffering. This is how Peter introduces himself as he's exhorting them to these things. So he's essentially saying, as a guy who's just like you, and as a guy who's failed bigger than you will ever fail, as a guy who has, has, uh, was, fell down on the job worse than you will ever fall down on the job, right? why does he do that? Because this is no doubt going to be convicting for these guys. I mean, this, is, this letter is going to go around to all these churches. No doubt there's going to be some churches where th this letter is going to be read and the elders are going to be sitting in the back and everyone's going to be like, did you hear that, Bob? Did you hear what Peter said? You know, that kind of thing. He knows that this is going to be something that's going to, be, that's going to hit home. These are people who are just starting out, just figuring out what does it look like to be the church? How do we lead a church? How do we... Be, con, conduct ourselves as the church, there's going to be some of these guys who are not doing well. And Peter says, there's hope. There's redemption. There's a way forward for you just because there was a way forward for me after I denied Jesus. I am yet still here. And I am a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. That's the third way he identifies himself here, a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. He's emphasizing the goal of our life and ministry, that it's not wealth and prosperity that will be found here and now. Rather, it's the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. Because there is little glory in serving the Lord or living for his kingdom to be found here, but there is glory that will be revealed at Christ's second coming. So then Peter commands them to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It was a better analogy for an agrarian society than it is for us, but the point is still understandable. We consider what do shepherds have to do. They have to care for their flock in various ways, right? They have to provide food and water, lead them to 
green pastures, find them streams and ponds and places where they can get water. They have to protect them from predators, right? That's what the classic shepherd's crook is about. That was, that was actually a weapon to fend off predators from the herd. And they have to care for the sheep. They have to attend to their injuries. They have to you know, do all kinds of things to, to make sure that they're staying healthy and safe. And elders, Peter is saying here, must do the same thing. They have to keep watch over those in their congregation in various ways. They have to provide spiritual nourishment. They have to protect from threats both within and without. And they have to attend to needs and provide loving care. And then Peter points to the the way in which they do this, that it should be not under compulsion, but willingly. Not something that people feel obligated to, but they should want to do this. They shouldn't do it for shameful gain, but eagerly. That no one should go into ministry to get rich or to defraud a congregation. That they should do it not in a domineering way, but being examples. They shouldn't be harsh and demanding. They should instead lead by example. Servant leadership in the church should look radically different from leadership in the world. Not authoritarian and repressive. Church leaders should lead lives that are worthy of emulation. And then Peter points them to their chief example. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, and he's talking, of course, about Jesus and his return, just as they have been called to be shepherds, they are under the chief shepherd. And this isn't an analogy that Peter invented on his own. This is one he heard Jesus himself speak of. In John chapter 10, verses 10 through 15, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Elders are to follow Jesus' example in caring for and sacrificing for the flock. Then he points to everybody else and he says, now all of you clothe yourselves with humility. And he addresses those who are younger, those who are more likely to be rebellious and tells them, be subject to the elders. He tells everyone to be humble. Humility should be the aroma of all of our relationships and interactions. We have been If we have been clothed in humility, then it should influence every interaction we have. It should be the baseline of how we approach one another. And at the end there, Peter quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, as evidence and motivation for our humility, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And now he's going to expand further on humility in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, our next section here. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is going to reiterate here a lot of the points he's already said in this letter. He's wrapping up in that way. And he speaks of humility as being key to being a follower of Jesus. That part of how we stay humble is remembering the greatness of God. That as we consider how great God is, that his, he is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present creator of all things, that he has granted us righteousness by his own grace and mercy, that we're saved by Jesus Christ and not by our own goodness. These truths ought to keep us humble. When we consider who God is, how big he is, how powerful he is, compared to us, it should humble us. When we consider what he has done for us that we never deserved, it should keep us humble. Dwelling in those truths keeps us humble. He connects this idea of, of our humbleness, of our being humble, to an interesting idea here. We have got verse 6. It's a, it's a pretty famous verse, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. That's a pretty popular verse. But verse 7 is pretty popular as well. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on him. But... Those verses, like, remember, you have to remember that the verse numbers are just just a, a, a different guy put those in, right? It wasn't original. When Peter's writing this, he wasn't like, verse 7, right? <laughs> it's not how it's put together. Those are put in later just for reference so that as we study the Bible, we can help find our spot. But sometimes they did a good job putting the verse numbers and chapters numbers in, but sometimes eh, they didn't do a very good job. And I think here, not a very good job because they stuck it in the middle of a sentence. There's no new sentence that starts in verse 7. Right? He's saying, humble yourselves. How are you doing that? Casting your anxieties on him. That part of how we humble ourselves is casting our anxieties on him. Why? Why are those ideas connected? Why is the idea of humbling ourselves connected with casting our anxieties on him? Well, I think it helps us to maybe understand that if we consider what does it mean to ask another human being for help, right? If you're going to ask another human being for help, what does that require of you? It requires some humility, right? It requires you admitting that you don't know what you're doing or that you cannot handle it on your own, right? If I have a problem with my car, I have to humble myself and go to another man and be like, can you help me? Because I don't know anything about this. And then they'll say like, okay, yeah, I can help you. Is it a, what size engine you got in there? Is it a 4.7 or a 5.3? And I'll go. <laughs> uh, I, see, you know what? I don't even know if those numbers are even options. I don't, but I know that those are the kind of things that, I have to answer a question, and I just go, you have to tell me. I can, I can open the hood and know where to do that. And then you have to take it from there. 
because right? I don't know anything about it. But which I know that like, I'm used to that by now. I got over that. I can admit that I'm an idiot when it comes to cars. I don't know anything, right? But, but for but some things, I certainly wouldn't want to just admit to somebody, I need help. I cannot do it. I don't know what I'm doing. That requires a level of humility, of humbling ourselves and saying, I am inadequate. And, in, and depending on what area that is for you, that is going to require some humility for you to ask someone for help. Because you're saying, I can't do it. As we get older, I see this in, in people as they get older and, and you're physically not able to do the things you used to be able to do. It requires some humility to come to somebody and say, can you help me with this thing? Because I am not strong enough anymore. Or I'm not capable, I'm not dexterous enough, or whatever it is. that you, It requires some humility to come and say, I need help. Can you help me? Can you inform me or can you help me somehow requires humility because we're admitting our inadequacy so if that's true in that situation then it's also true when we have to ask god that when we have to ask god for help it requires us humbling ourselves and saying i'm not good enough i'm not capable i'm not strong enough for this thing that you've given me or there's this really popular but really stupid saying that, I, I mean, I'm probably going to ruin this for somebody today, but, but people like to say, listen, hey, you know what? God never gives you more than you can handle. You know that? God never gives you more than you can handle. Of course he does. Of course he gives you more than you can handle. Because you're not meant to handle everything on your own. Right, if that was the case, then what he's then what, what then what he's telling you is, I'm not gonna give you more than you can handle, so you better handle it. But that's not the case. In, ca in fact, he gives you more than you can handle so that you will come to him and say, Here, I can't handle it. Right? It's in fact the exact opposite truth that he will give you more than you can handle, it will draw so that it will drive you to him. And that's why we are to cast our anxieties on him, to give him that heavy burden. Because it is more than you can handle. Whatever it, whatever it is that you get to that point and you go, I, I don't feel like I can handle this. And some idiot comes to you and says, oh, God never gives you more than you can handle. You can say, yeah, he did. He gave me more than I can handle. So that I can go to him with it. So I can give it to him, back to him. We are meant to cast our anxieties on him. Now, I do want to be careful in that because I, I know that that's the kind of thing that like, when people struggle with anxiety sometimes, that it's like, oh, so I need to cast my anxiety on him. And if I'm not doing that, that means I'm not humble enough. And that just gives you a new anxiety. That's not what we're trying to do here. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm explaining the connection there because there is a connection for some people but especially if you struggle with chronic anxiety then that is still just continuing to give it to him continuing to give it to him as much as you can and praying for the spirit's help to do that because sometimes that is it's not as simple as it sounds when it says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of god and he'll exalt you casting your anxieties on him that some of you just go yo great yeah i'll give him there you go god and now i'm anxiety free 
right? But some people go, okay, yeah, I'll cast my anxiety as an enemy, and then it's just like on a rubber band. It comes smacking back on you. You go, that didn't seem to work. You got to just keep throwing it. You got to keep casting the anxieties on him. And it's not going to be like, boom, okay, now it's all fixed. This is a continual process, right? There's an ING on that. Casting. It's continual. Casting your anxieties. Not having casted your anxieties on him. Casting your anxieties on him. This is something that he's talking about doing all the time. In the same way, we don't just have to humble ourselves once, right? It, it's, this is also not something that we go, oh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And you go, okay, done. I've humbled myself. Check that off the list. And now I am humble. No, it's something that's a continual process, as are most things in our walk with the Lord, as it, can, as it will be with the next thing that he says here, which is your adversary, the devil. Your ad, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's already told us about being sober-minded, about being watchful, but he adds the motivation here of that we have this roaring lion that is seeking to devour us. It's not just persecution by human enemies that we need to be concerned about. There is real spiritual warfare going on. Satan and demons are real and active, and we must acknowledge that spiritual warfare is real and be ready for it. Peter, in fact, calls us to resist Satan. We might consider what kinds of things does Satan tempt us to. And in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, right before the, the verses about the fruits of the Spirit, which are great, he gives us the opposite, right? He says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, whenever we encounter in Scripture a list like these, I think something kind of funny happens. You can go back to verse 19 for a second. I mean, it starts off with some heavy hitters, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Whoa, okay, don't worry about it. I am not doing those things. Right? Don't worry, I can avoid that. Check that off the list. I can avoid those things. Right? Those are the big heavy hitters. Go to verse 20. Idolatry, sorcery. Well, building idols? Idolatry? Like, just need to not have a shrine? Not a problem. I won't have a shrine. Right? Sorcery. What? No problem. I'm not going to cast any spells. Right? And these are the big things that jump out at you. When you read this list, the things that stand out are the, like, sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, I think enmity, strife, these are just filler words, right? But these are the things that are much more likely to actually get us, right? Enmity, that's like having enemies, right? Having strife, conflict between people, jealousy. Right? That's, that's an internal thing. That's something that's not, no one's going to know if you're jealous of somebody, right? Unless you tell them. But you can have jealousy in your heart just all by yourself. Fits of anger, that's just a little fit of anger. Right? That's not something I need to really worry about. It's just a one, boop, there it is, and, you know, and then I apologize. And it's, oh, no, that's what he's talking about here. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Again, he's talking about 
human conflict, interpersonal conflict, jealousies, envy, another thing that you can just have and nobody knows, needs to know about it. Right? But then he goes to drunkenness and orgies, and you're like, well, again, that seems like you put orgies on the list. My fits of anger don't seem like that big of a deal. Right? And again, like I'm avoiding the big ones that are on this list. But, it's, but what is the most common? These smaller things that we actually see all the time. Right? These internal things like jealousy and envy. These little things like enmity and fits of anger, strife division. These are the things that we're much more often going to be tempted by, the things that Satan will much more often use for those of us who generally look pretty good most of the time. We should be encouraged and strengthened to resist these things because we know that we're not the only ones going through them. He, in fact, tells us that this is happening throughout the world. That throughout the world, persecution has happened throughout church history, all around the world to this day, and spiritual warfare happens everywhere all the time. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We should be united and encouraged knowing that we are not in this alone. Right? Whatever you're going through, there's a Christian who has been through it. Or whether that's from persecution externally, whether that's temptation and struggle internally, whether that's doubt there is a Christian who has been through it. You are not alone. There's another Christian who's going through it right now. I cannot tell you how many times people have come to me uh, and meet with me in my office or somewhere or talking on the phone, and they go, well, I just, I don't, I just feel weird going to church because I, everybody there, they're all happy. They're singing. They're engaged. They're on board with everything that's going on, and I have doubt. Or they say, but I, or I, I have this temptation that I'm struggling with, or I have this thing going on in my life that's so terrible, and I just, I, I, I'm so depressed about it, and I don't feel like I can come and be with everybody because they're all just happy and everything's going great in their lives, and I'm just different than everybody else. I'm just alone. But I talk to all of you, and that's not true. Right? You're all messed up. <laughs> Like, you all got stuff going on. Everybody's got something. Everybody's got something going on. Like, if you're here and you feel like, oh, I'm struggling with doubt, or I'm struggling with this thing that's going on in my life, or I'm struggling with temptation, you are not alone. That's true of all the people sitting next to you, too. They've got their thing, whatever it is. And, and people just get deceived by Satan into thinking that, well, when I go to church, everybody that's there, they're all doing great and everything's going wonderful in their lives and, and God is just blessing them and they're perfectly obedient to Christ and their families are all intact and happy and everything. It's like, no, it's not true. That's why Peter tells us this. is why Peter tells us we're not alone. That's why Paul tells us there's no temptation that's not common to man. That's why Peter says here in, in verse 9 that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
We'll look lastly here at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Peter brings up the guy who he dictated this letter to. His name is Silvanus. And he's actually a bigger deal than you think he is. right? He's a kind of an unsung hero of uh, the early church. right? He appears in the New Testament more than you think. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1 19 through 20, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. So right there we see Peter, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he says, talks about Silvanus, Timothy, and I. And again, Paul and Timothy, you know those guys. Those are common names you're used to. They're the Batman and Robin of the New Testament. Right, but Sylvanus is right there with him. And you go, well, I didn't even notice that before. First, first and second Thessalonians, first Thessalonians chapter one. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonica. Second letter to Thessalonica is just the same. It's not just from Paul and Timothy, it's from Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. All of a sudden you got him in there. In Acts chapter 15, and actually. Twelve times in in, 15, in Acts chapter 15 through 18, he's mentioned, he's mostly mentioned by the name Silas in this case, but that is just simply a, a nickname, uh, kind of shortened version of Silvanus. And, and it says in, in Acts chapter 15, 22 through 23, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brothers. Again, that is, uh, that is Silvanus, who is called there. And he's mentioned 12 times. In fact, he's the one who Paul chooses to take with him when he and Barnabas split up over John Mark. When they, Paul doesn't want to take John Mark with them again. Barnabas does. They decide to split up. Barnabas takes John Mark, and Paul takes Silvanus. He's here dictating this letter, or writing this letter that Peter is di dictating. Peter also mentions that he's had with him Mark, his son. And again, in this case, this is, this is Mark, the, the author of the Gospel of Mark. Um, the Gospel of Mark is Peter's Gospel account. And Mark was not Peter's biological son, but rather a spiritual son. It's the way that Paul addresses Timothy in his titular epistles. And he also mentions she who is at Babylon. And here he's not talking about a specific person. It's a, it's a little bit of a code here. When he says Babylon, he's actually talking about Rome. right? Babylon in the Old Testament was the seat of worldly power. Rome is now the seat of worldly power. So he's just simply using Babylon to refer to Rome. And when he says, she who is at Rome, he's talking about the whole church. So he's saying the church and referring it to as a singular person. He's saying, she who is at Rome, who is chosen, greets you. And he tells them to greet one another with the kiss of love. And this is obviously a cultural application. There are cultures in which kissing people who are friends of yours is a normal thing. It's not that normal in our culture. 
uh, happens sometimes, but not that not that common. For our context, a, a hug is probably more appropriate, as we generally don't share kisses between friends. But he's asking them, encouraging them to demonstrate genuine love for one another in Christ. And then he ends by extending peace to them, right? Peace to you. And he actually began his letter by extending grace and peace to them. Because as challenging as his letter was, they should be at peace even as they strive for greater Christ-likeness because their righteousness is ultimately found in Christ alone. Right? Just He wants them to start and end with peace, of being at peace, because even if these things have been convicting to people, even if these are things that have stirred things up in people, found, they've found and discovered sin in their own lives as a result of his writing, they've found things they know that they need to change, they should be at peace because it, their righteousness was never based on their own goodness anyway. Right? They should want to become more like Jesus. They should want to change, but ultimately know that that change only comes by the grace of of Jesus anyway, right? That we're only changed, we're saved by grace, but we're also changed by grace. And that ultimately we can be at peace because our righteousness is, is found in Christ alone. I got three takeaways for today's message. Number one, lead by example as humble servants. He calls us to this leadership that is Christ-like and humble. Number two, cast your anxieties on Jesus continually, regularly, things will come up. Problems will be faced. We have to continually be casting our anxieties on him. And then third, rest in the grace and peace that we find only in Jesus. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for this letter from Peter and the truth that it contains. And we pray that we would be at peace. And I pray that everyone here would have a sense of your peace as we rest in the grace that we find in you. That we would stand firm knowing that you are our foundation. You are the only one on which we can stand. We pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.